good to be able to sing songs that reflect the various realities of our life. You know, a lot of times we just want to sing happy songs, as if that's the only experience we have is happiness. Um, I hope, though, that the mournfulness of that song doesn't reflect what you're going to experience from me today. Um, That's not the intent, for sure. In fact, I come before you today with a heart really that is overflowing with joy as I look out at my family, my church family, and my friends, my brothers, and my sisters, and think about just last night and what many of us were able to experience together, remembering the faithfulness of other brothers and sisters who've come before us, who had to make the decision every Lord's Day morning, do we leave our house, go to the field where we're going, we've been pushed out into worship, knowing that if we run into the King's Dragoons, me and my wife and my children will not be coming home today. That was not, that's not what you had to do this morning. You didn't have to make that decision. And so we ought to be thankful. In fact, if you were to ask me, what are you thankful for, Dave? I would likely respond with the names of people in my life. My children, you all, my friends, I'm thankful for you. But if you were to ask me, what what are the causes of the most pain and stress and worry in my life, guess what I would say? You all. My family, my kids, my, my church friends. One of the best things in life are the people that God has given to us. And one of the hardest things in life are the people God has given to us. Can I get an amen, church? That's right, because you all know what I'm talking about this morning. Relationships, though, are not man's idea. They're not man-made. The world in which we live, the structure of this cosmos in which we exist, reflects the character of the God who has created it. The art always reflects the artist. Think about that. We are the art reflecting the artist. Relationships are not simply a good idea or a neat invention. We were created for relationship because God is a God of relationship. And you're thinking, probably, yeah, he, he wants to have a relationship with us. Why, why he sent Jesus. That's not what I mean, actually, at this point, at least. This is, it, this is a similar reality to the reality that God is not simply loving. Think about this for a second. God is not just loving. That's not how he describes himself. He is love. Love was not an invention of God that he just happened to be really good at. Huh, you know what I'm going to try today? I'm going to try this thing called love. Oh, wow, I'm really good at it. Now I'm going to ask that my creatures do the same thing. Love is a necessary part of who God is. And as the source of love, he's also relational. In fact, being relational is necessitated by the fact that he is love. Love requires an object outside of itself, which in the past this would not have been controversial. Now this is very controversial. Self-love at the core of what love fundamentally is is an impossibility. It doesn't exist. It can't happen. 
If you've heard about the insane idea of sologamy, so monogamy is having one spouse, polygamy is having multiple spouses. Anybody hear sologamy? It's a thing. Wow, none of you have heard of this? Solo marriage. Yes, Dan Davies is just incredulous. What? Are you really surprised? Come on. We're trying all sorts of new and um, fantastical ideas now. Sologamy. Self-weddings. Yeah, I see some looks of gross. Like, really? Yes. Yes. But it's, we shouldn't just be going, well, that's silly. That's dumb. That's gross. We should be saying that's impossible. To marry oneself is an impossibility because marriage is a unique relationship of love. And because it's a relationship of love, it requires two people. Giving a gift to oneself is not giving at all. It's just spending. God is able to be love precisely because he, though being one God in essence, is nevertheless eternally three persons. So built into the very being of God, who he is in his essence then is the reality of a relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit live in relationship to one another. And built into the very essence of what it means to be a human then as his creatures is the need for relationships. If you're one of those people who wonders at times, do I really, do I really have to pursue relationships? Do I really need to be in relationship with these people? Can't I just kind of do this thing on my own? No, you can't. You can't. Under normal conditions, we need other people. That's built into the system by God. And so we're, we're, built, we're, we're brought back into this, this harsh reality then, that while relationships with others are necessary, in fact, they can be some of the best parts of our human experience, they are also some of the hardest. We may be in, and you... Some of you maybe don't shake your heads, okay, because you might, we might have to deal with some offense uh, in a few moments. Uh, we can do this later. But you may be in relationships that are selfish, distant, damaging. Or think about this. Some of you are like, no, that's not me. I, I'm longing for relationships that I don't have. I'm dominated by a sense of loneliness. I'd like to have some friends, some relationships that would be hard. I don't have anybody. That might be how some of you feel. Because family relationships are broken, and marriage relationships are broken, and friendships are broken. Connections with people of all sorts can be very dangerous. If the primary goal of life, then, were to live as long as possible with as little pain as possible. So think, think about that. If that was the telos of our life, the goal of our life, I want to live as long as possible and avoid as much pain as possible, then one could make the case that the best thing to do would be to, here's three things you could do to try to affect that in your life. I'm going to avoid people altogether. That's number one. Number two. I'm going to limit the depth of any connections, always holding people at arm, arm's length, never letting them in close. That's number two. Or number three, okay, maybe I'll let some people in close, but I'm going to curate those friendships, and I'm only going to allow connections to, to, to happen in my life with people of the highest caliber and the least risk. Those would be three ways, if the goal, live long and limit my pain. 
those would be the three goals. Avoid, limit the depth, limit the number. Many of you actually have tried this. Some of you are actually still trying this. You've picked a, a cocktail of, composed of a mixture of these three options. Because you ask yourself, why, why would God do this? Why would, why would he bring this kind of painful reality into my life? Is this, is God our, if God is our father, is he just really bad at joking around? And this is just one of those really unfunny jokes for life. No, the problem isn't with the design, but with the brokenness that we bring into our relationships. Avoiding, limiting the depth of relationship, limiting the number of relationships, that is not what Jesus did. We know that that's, that's wrong. If we were to say it out loud, we wouldn't want to admit, oh yeah, I'm doing that. We know that that's not how Jesus lived. He didn't avoid people. What did he do? Think about Christian. What did he do? He became people. He took on flesh and became one of us and inserted himself in the midst of this relational mess. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he didn't limit the depth of those relationships. He didn't always hold people at arm's length. Never letting him in close. Think about what he did. He risked the loss of relationships to the point of weeping when that loss touched him in the death of his close friend. He knew that was coming. And he engaged that relationship anyway. He risked betrayal at the hands of one of his closest friends, Peter, who he then graciously and gloriously commissioned. He risked death in bringing a man into his inner circle who he knew would betray him. And he didn't limit the number of connections, curating friendships, just making sure it was only the best, only the safest. His friendships included an inner three for sure. And that's where a lot of us, if we're going to do friendship, we're like, okay, I'm going to do three. I can manage that. But it also included for Jesus a close and intimate 12, a crowd of disciples, and the crowds of friends in his life grew every day because every day he sought out more and more people. If self-preservation and limiting pain were the most important goal, then Jesus was an utter failure. If personal feelings of fulfillment were the goal, then don't follow Jesus. He sought out friends, not that he might be benefited, but that his friends might be benefited. He didn't seek them out for anything that he would receive, but so that he might better give to them. But Jesus doesn't just set a good example. He doesn't just point the way. He did something far greater. He did something in the history of this ragtag group of, of cosmic criminals that we call humanity. He paid the ransom price for friendship. He bought back the possibility that friendship might once again become the blessing it was intended to be. There is an antidote to the poison that poisons friendship. 
There's a hero who came and rescued us from the captivity of sin to self. Jesus is the person to whom we must look if we are to be rescued from our our relational darkness, our relational brokenness, our relational enslavements. You are not going to find a better friend than Jesus. He is a good friend for you today, not just a, a historical fable that teaches us a truth. You are not going to find a better example of friendship than in the way that Jesus chose to interact with people. You might think you have a better way. But as J. Vernon McGee once quipped, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. God invented friendship and showed us how to do it in a fallen world where friends hurt each other. The reason I'm even talking about this today is because your elders have seen friendship challenges in our church, and we want to help you navigate those friendships in a way that is growingly mature, God-honoring, and satisfying. And I want you to notice a few things there. Growing. We don't, we don't do friendship perfectly. Even as I was preparing for this sermon, I kept asking myself, where do I need to grow as a friend? What can I do better? We want you to grow in maturity. We want you to grow in your ability to honor God in these ways. And we want you to be satisfied in your relationships. So please stand. We're going to read the passage that is really at the heart of today's message. John 15, verses 9 through 15. We stand that we might demonstrate with our bodies that we honor God's word. Starting at verse 9 of John chapter 15. Hear the words of God. Hear the words of God the Son. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And I've told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. In fact, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning, we ask you, our Heavenly Father, be pleasing in your sight, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So the first thing I want to note as we think about this passage is what I call a a cascade of love flowing down from the Father. Four people or groups are mentioned here. You've got God the Father, God the Son, you, and each other. Verse 9 says this, as the Father, watch for the cascade, watch for the waterfall of love. 
As the Father has loved me, that's Jesus, so I have loved you. Do you see that right there you've got three people in just that one phrase. As the Father has loved me, so have I have loved you. It flows from the Father to the Son. The Father loves Jesus. This overflows from Jesus to who? To you. And then he says in verse 12, my command is this. So we've got kind of this three tiers so far. Father, Jesus, and you. Does it end there? What's the pool at the bottom of this waterfall? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. My command is this. Now love each other. We respond to God's love by loving each other. That's the pool. The huge pool at the bottom of this waterfall of love. Jesus takes the love that he receives. And what does he do with it? He loves other people. Because love, love always gives. Love always gives. Giving is the the defining reflex of love. If you've ever been to the doctor for a, a a physical, and he takes the little hammer, and you put your knee up, and he hits it, and without even, try, you can try, try as you might to not kick, you are going to kick. The defining reflex of love is giving. If you've experienced the love of God, you are going to naturally desire to give. Love is ever-expanding. It it begins in the eternal love of God. You cannot contain it. It is ever-expanding. It can't be contained, and so it overflows its banks. It is not a fixed commodity. And some of you might think, well, how could I love more? If I have another child, how could I love a child more? A spouse dies, and I have another, there's a, a marriage, like the McFarlands. Is it possible to love more? Yes! Because of the source of love. It's infinite because it finds itself in the the nature of God. In a sense, because Jesus is love, and love expands and grows and overflows and reaches out for objects to love, in a sense, Jesus couldn't help but love. It's his nature. And we always do that which is consistent with our nature. This isn't to say that Jesus loved against his will. The opposite is true. Hear this. He loved because it is his nature to do so. And therefore, if our hearts have been transformed, then we will find our nature being transformed. Our reflex will no longer be to grab, to conserve, to hold on to, to hide the love that we've received. Having been loved by Jesus, we're now not only enabled to love others, but we will have a natural, reflexive response to desire to love the people around us. We must, in both of the meanings of that word must, we must, must meaning it is the natural outflowing, and must meaning it's an, an ethical obligation We must follow in the footsteps of our rabbi Jesus. Not as a rote, obligatory thing, but because as we are loved, our hearts and our desires, they're changing, and we should love with the easiness and the delight with which the Father loves the Son and with which he loves us. 
and when I say easiness, some of you might go, what? Love is not easy. I know. Love isn't easy. But what I mean is that it is the natural inclination of our hearts. It is the, the sleep talk of our lives. The things that we say when we aren't thinking, it just comes out. It's the fruit of our heart's habit of thought. The natural gravity of your life to bring others into your orbit that you might let them feel the warmth of the love that has warmed your heart. And so far, I think most of you are tracking with me. You're thinking, okay, yeah, that affirmative. Yes, that sounds great. Amen. 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 You're like, oh, where's this going now? Catherine's amen. Where is this going? We've been loved. Popular. Love gives. Sounds good. So far, so good. But even as these words were being delivered to the disciples, they didn't have the benefit of knowing the whole story, the story that we know. They'd been told, but they didn't get it yet. The cross and the resurrection for them were yet future. They didn't know that what he was setting them up for was love not in the abstract, not an easy, flippant love. Jesus doesn't allow love to remain an ethereal idea just to be thought about. In these words, Jesus is foreshadowing his own act of love, the paradigmatic act of love, when he tells them that the greatest love is that one is self-sacrificial, even to the point of dying, even of the, to the point of dying for enemies. Verse 9, 10, and then 12, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Verse 10, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 12, love each other as I've loved you. And there's an important little word in there. We should find great comfort in this word, and we should also be deeply challenged by it. Verses 9, 10, and 12, you can see it there. It's a two-letter word. It's the word for as. It's the word as. The word as indicates that we have examples to follow. We can look to the love relationship that Jesus has with the Father. The Father loves him, and out of that love, Jesus desires to obey his Father. It's the internal experience of love between the Father and the Son that motivates Jesus to love you. This is deeply encouraging, or it should be. Because it, it's only the love of God that provides us with any hope as sinners who need to be made right with that God again. But this is also deeply challenging because the natural expectation then, if we have truly experienced the love of Jesus, is that we will do what Jesus does. It's the natural, eternal, dependable, inexhaustible experience of love received from our Savior and our King that motivates us to love. And that love is expressed even as Jesus expresses it through faithful, and this is the hard part, sacrificial and here's another hard part, obedience. Love expresses itself through faithful, sacrificial obedience. Jesus wasn't a hypocrite. He doesn't ask us to do anything he wasn't willing to do. The command of God the Father to God the Son is to love to death. 
And Jesus says, hey, CVP, you're my friends if you do what I command. And we wouldn't be wrong to include all of Jesus' commandments in that you'll, you're my friend if you do what I command. You are my friends if you don't lie, if you don't lust, if you don't worship idols, if you don't covet. True, all true. It, it's, it's a good mirror to hold yourself up to. Am I obeying Christ? Do I even want to obey the commandments? If not, then you're not being a good friend to Jesus. Maybe you're not even a friend at all. But the context brings what is meant by do what I command to a helpful and dramatic clarity. Love like I love. And though Jesus hadn't yet at the time done it to the full, he now has. We now know what he was intending to do. What was he intending to do? To die for his enemies. This is at the heart of the Christian life and therefore at the heart of Christian friendship, which is the topic for today. Christian friendship, which is just another way of saying friendship in God's world, friendship practiced in a way that pleases and honors him, is a way of relating to people that, hear these, I've got four bullets here. Christian friendship seeks their interests first, sacrifices for their good, thinks about their desires and needs before our own, is willing to do this to the gloriously bitter end. We are his friends if we do friendship the way he did friendship. So, question to ask yourself this morning. Are you doing friendship the way that he did friendship? Are you seeking, listen, are you seeking to love? When you think about what you don't have in your friendships, are you seeking to love or are you seeking to be loved? What did Jesus do? Are, you, are your relationships, your friendships characterized by sacrifice for their good? Are you thinking about their desires and their needs before your own? Are you willing to do this and to keep doing it and to keep living this way and to keep being a friend this way to the bitter end? Because that's what Jesus did. When you get upset with your friends, is it because you're not getting what you want? If you've got upsetness in your friendships is it because you're not getting what you want this goes for marriage it goes for parent-child relationships does offense often accompany, accompany your friendships do you when you think about your the kind of the the landscape of your fr friendships is there a lot of offense there are you easily offended are you approaching friendship as a consumer or as a provider Is giving and sacrifice with no expectation of return what dominates your approach to friendship, or is it the alternative? Think about initiating friendship. When we look at this text today, what do we see? Is God waiting for you? 
just sitting back waiting for you to take the first step. You don't even have to say anything, Presbyterians. Just shake your heads. Is he waiting for you to take the first step? No. I see one head. That'll do. No, he's not waiting for you. Being a good, true friend means you take the initiative. He set the example. The father initiates love with the son who responds. Jesus initiates love with us, and we respond. If you are to follow his example, then, you need to make initiative a central aspect of how you operate as a friend. That's often not what we do. We wait. If that person is a good friend, they're going to come up to me. They're going to do the work, and then I get to respond. That is not how Jesus is a friend. The uncomfortable truth is that we are natural demanders and we're natural consumers. And so the truth may be that you are not a very friendly person. Not that you're not kind or you're not nice, but you may place the burden on other people And when they're unwilling to pick up that burden that you've placed in front of them, you blame them. They're not a good friend. What does it say about you? Do we have the right to demand others to be our friends? Holding up this expectation, if they don't meet it, then we just shake our heads and walk away. As we look at this text, what else do we see going on here? Well, how does Jesus describe friendship? Friendship requires persistence. We hear, remain in my love. Friendship requires doing what is right. Do what I command. Friendship involves joy. I've told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. We give the joy we've been given to our friends. Friendship is not slavery, but companionship. We're brought into confidence as we, like we're traveling companions. A friend on the road. Some of you have an objection already, maybe a few. Here's one objection I was thinking about. What you're suggesting is a one-sided relationship with no boundaries that will result in unhealthy friendships and characterized by various manifestations of abuse. I forget sometimes that these sermons will be on YouTube in the public domain, and I, I don't pretend that anybody's going to really listen to it, moving forward, but if somebody got a hold of it, I have no doubt that some of the critiques and the nasty gram comments at the bottom would be, you know what he's suggesting? He's suggesting a way of doing friendships that is one-sided, no boundaries, going to result in unhealthy friendships characterized by various manifestations of abuse. That's gonna, in fact, if you're listening to this and you want a nasty gram to put out on the bottom, just quote that. I am not doing that. What I'm simply trying to do is apply the principles given to us in the words and life of Jesus. What I'm suggesting is that our motives tend to be selfish in relationships, and that love as the center of any healthy relationship is characterized by giving and self-sacrifice. In a healthy relationship, you have two people who are dedicated to mutual self-giving. Let me say that again. You want a healthy relationship. Stop demanding. Healthy relationships involve two people who are dedicated to mutual self-giving. Their object is to love the other person, not to be loved. And when you have two people doing that, everybody gets love. And it's beautiful. 
and it's what you see in the relationships of the persons of the triune Godhead, who we are supposed to reflect in our lives. When this takes place, relationships thrive. Even in a fallen world with sinners involved, when when the giving is one-sided, the answer, listen to this, but you're thinking, well, I'm doing all that. I'm trying. I'm giving. I'm giving. The other person's the problem. The answer to selfish people in relationships is not to become one yourself. It's our tendency because we want justice. And we also want to communicate to them how we're feeling. So if I stop doing what God calls me to do in that relationship, maybe they'll get it. Maybe they'll feel the distance I feel. Is that how God treats you? No. He persists and he loves patiently to the end, even to death. It may be the case that a relationship in your life needs to change. You maintain that friendship, but the dynamics do have to change. I'm not saying that things don't have to change. It may be that you have to limit those friendships for a time. It may be that a relationship does need to end because one person in it is living and acting in such a way that the relationship is harmful to you, to them. Have you thought about that? Or to both? God makes provision for us to avoid being unnecessarily damaged. We can defend ourselves when violence is threatened, and there is such a thing as kind of relational violence and relational harm. But let's go back. Self-preservation is not and should not be your ultimate aim. If self-preservation were the most important goal for a human, then Jesus was an utter failure. It may be better for the furtherance of the kingdom and the redemption of the world, that you be defrauded, that you be offended, that you be injured. In numerous ways, we see this manifest in the logic of Christ's kingdom. Listen listen to these examples. It is better to be defrauded than to take a brother to secular court, exercising your right to financial self-defense. There are times when experiencing financial injustice and pain is exactly what God calls you to do. It's better for the kingdom. It's better to turn the other cheek and manifest the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom than to defend yourself against mockery and even physical pain. Jesus said that, not me. If your enemy asks for your cloak, don't assert your right to self-defense. Give him your tunic as well. If you're living with an unbelieving husband, seek to love him sacrificially in such a way that he will take notice and be saved. The paradox of the cross is that giving up our rights and our privileges can actually have far greater rewards, such as saving the souls of, our, of the perpetrators and actually bringing us more joy and giving God far more glory than if you were to just exercise your rights like a good American. Because you, Christian, every single one of you, I don't know all of you deep down to the core, but there's something that I know about each one of you, redeemed and blood-bought. 
you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, and because of that, nothing that happens to you happens except what is under the sovereign control of God for your good. You are far more durable, and you are far more able to withstand the challenges of friendship than you might feel. That should actually give you hope, and you should say, that was actually good news. But some of you are sitting there going, I don't like this, I don't like it at all. I'm telling you, you're stronger, not in yourself, but because you live in God's world, nothing happens to you accidentally. He gives it all to you, and he gives you the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you are more durable. You are stronger than you might feel today. I'm not suggesting that you endure unneeded pain or injury, but our world is creating snowflakes that melt under the slightest heat of pressure. But our Heavenly Father, on the other hand, is growing giant killers who know how to get bloodied and bruised in the battle because they know how to fight to win. And you are not snowflakes. You are sons and daughters of the living God of the universe. The spirit of that God lives inside of you. It doesn't mean that you're not weak, but if God calls you into a difficult relationship, your first response should not be to flee. It should be to ask God, what do you want me to do? How can I best honor you? How can I best love this person? And if that involves pain and loss and death, guess what Jesus did for you? What is friendship, anyway? Friendship comes in all shapes and sizes. It's as varied as the people that comprise them. A helpful rubric for friendship is to view it as a mixture of three things. And there's lots of other ways that we could talk about friendship, but I found this helpful. Three things comprise different varieties of friendship, depending on which ones are present and to what degree. Association loyalty and affection association loyalty and affection if you if you want to know what kind of a friendship do i have you can say well what's my association to this person is it just built around association do i have loyalty to this person and what's the the nature of that loyalty and do i have affection for this person and what kind of affection or what degree of affection do i have this per, for this person so if we have friendships that are based solely on association we tend to call that in our culture acquaintance You may shop at the same store and see each other weekly. You might share a few pleasant words. That would just be a friendship of association. You could define it, or you could use another word, just call it an association. And honestly, sometimes that happens here. Oftentimes that happens here. Somebody can be coming to this church along with you for years, and you really, practically speaking, are just associates, just acquaintances. But... Karen and I, early on in our marriage, we went shopping every Thursday night and began to build a relationship of sorts with the checker there named Glenn. Over time, we we learned about his family, we learned about his wife, we learned about his hobbies. We watched him as he was on his weight loss journey and were able to encourage him. This was more than a mere acquaintance, but it certainly didn't rise to the level of deep friendship. But it was more, right? Can you see how there was more there than just, hi, 
yes, I, this is on sale, make sure that I get my coupon process through the register. We were learning about this person and demonstrating a certain level of affection for him. We may have a friendship that begins as an association around, around a shared loyalty to or affection for a hobby, a business relationship, but as long as that loyalty or affection is just aimed or grounded in the hobby or the business obligation and not to the person, our friendship will be as strong as our affection for that thing rather than the person. And so if you lose interest in a model airplane, you know, you model airplanes, that was the, the hobby that you were involved in, then as soon as you learn, lose interest in the airplanes, you lose interest in those friendships and you've seen that happen in your lives where, where friendships fade because it really wasn't, the loyalty wasn't to the person but to the, the shared interest. Which, by the way, is a good warning. Like, be careful about what, as you're assessing your friendships, what are, why are we really friends? And if it's all about these associations and there's no loyalty beyond that and there's no real affection, don't be surprised. That's not necessarily bad. Those kinds of acquaintances are a, a real part of life and that's not a problem in every situation, but don't be surprised when that association fades. Some friendships have strong loyalty and association, but no affection. A good example of that, of that from the scriptures is David and Joab. Joab was loyal to David as his general, certainly associated with him, but there was no affection. But then there's what I think we all long for. We long for the kind of friendship that we would call a deep friendship. And you see that in David and Jonathan. Of course, they were associated with one another. They had loyalty to one another, and they had deep affection for one another. But one problem that people often get into, and I, this is happening here, so if, if I've lost you, come back. It's a problem that we often get into we set up the wrong expectations for friendship. This is often because we approach friendship like it's a simple object, like a square. A square is a plain figure with four equal straight sides and four right angles. Very simple, very concrete, very limited. You change any of those features and it's no longer a square. A square is a plain figure with four equal straight sides and four right angles. That's a square. Any shape that misses this narrow definition is rightly rejected as a square. But friendship is not like this. And many of you have been treating friendship like this, and you're disappointed all the time. And your friendships are damaged because you're treating friendship like squares. Friendships are more like flowers. And our lives are like the path that wind through a garden. Gardens are full of a huge diversity of flowers, and flowers come in all shapes and all sizes and all heights and all scents. To reject, I just found, uh, as we were planting wildflowers for Karen, I, I found this new flower I never knew existed, and I don't know why we don't plant more of them. They are amazing. They're called zinnias. To reject a zinnia, say, ah, it's not a flower, because it lacks the scent the thorns and the familiarity to you of a rose would be to miss out on a beautiful flower that God has given you to enjoy. And like a garden, you may pick a flower to carry close to you for a time, but it may need to be planted somewhere else along the way. Some flowers will be closer to you. Others 
will be farther away as you walk through that garden. Some flowers have scents that you more naturally are inclined toward, and others not so much. And like flowers, friendships change and grow, and they mature, and they sometimes wither, and they sometimes die. But we set ourselves up for a lot of disappointment if we don't recognize the diverse and the dynamic nature of friends and friendship. Don't expect friendships to stay the same. Don't try to fit all your friendships into one little shape. God didn't design it that way. And if you're expecting that, you're only going to be disappointed over and over again. They can grow and become lovely and beautiful and better over time. They can need to change for fine reasons or problematic reasons, but don't expect them to, to stay the same. Even in God's perfect world, they weren't intended to be that way. Sometimes friendships change simply because of a change in circumstances, and those changes are totally fine, just sad. When Phil Olson moved away, many of you heard him speak at the memorial service, I didn't lose a friend, but our friendship did change. Distance from one another, even with communication technology, will change a friendship. And change isn't always bad. It just can be sad. That's okay. When the Flickingers moved away, um, I don't know who else kept in touch with you. Ted and Jones have done a spectacular job of staying in touch with you and making points to go visit you. And that's beautiful and good. And the rest of us, probably not so much, right? And if, if the, and I don't know how the Flickingers feel, so maybe we'll need to chat after this, but, but let's assume the Flickingers knew, you know, friendships are like that. They change, and distance can change the relationship. They have a choice. They can either be bitter, how dare you not maintain the same level of friendship with me, even though I'm 2,000 miles away, and we don't see each other every Sunday, and we don't do anything during the week together. You should be calling me every week. They could have done that, and many of you have done that to friendships. That's not realistic. You're holding if you're doing that kind of thing, you're holding people hostage to your own unbiblical definition and expectations of friendship. Ask most of the adults here, kids, and they will tell you that very few, if any of their friends from elementary school, are still their friends today. It doesn't mean they weren't friends. That's not necessarily a sign of a problem or of sin, but of the dynamic, changing nature of friendship. So the, some of these principles are, are by no means all the principles that you can bring to bear in your friendships. But we should be considering them as we think about and engage in friendships. I want to take some time now to, to think through how to apply these to some common problem areas. My desire here is not simply to annoy you. It's not to cause you pain but rather to speak truth to you in love for your good so that you can grow in your ability to be a good friend. Notice how I framed that. I did not say, I want you to grow in your ability to get friends. Think about that. I, didn't, I don't want you to grow in your ability to get friends. You see how that flips? It's a very common thing to do. We, we've flipped the whole process on its head when we do that. I want you to grow in your ability to be a good friend. And guess what happens when you are a good friend? You get friends. So problem number one, and maybe this describes you, I don't have friends. I want them. Maybe. 
but I don't have them. And I'm not addressing here the situation that where for a season or a short time you struggle to find friends. Maybe you moved and you need to develop friends. You may be providentially limited in the number or quality of the people available to you. It's not what I'm addressing. What I'm addressing here is the person who over time seems to always struggle to find good friendships. If the struggle is consistent, it is not wise to point your finger around at the world. The problem is likely what we see in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. So if I've already offended you, go ahead and write that down. Proverbs 18, verse 24. It says this. I'm going to quote the King James because I like the way it puts it. A man that has friends must show himself friendly. And there is a man, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That last part we have often heard. There's a man who sticks closer than a friend that sticks closer than a, than a brother. But listen to the first part again. A man that has friends must show himself friendly. So here's a question to ask. When you, this is describes you, I don't have friends. I want them. Here's a question to ask as, as you think about your approach to friendship. Am I interested in getting a friend or being a friend? And I hope by now you should go, I, 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 okay, I see what's going on here. The problem is that I'm so concerned about getting friends, I'm not concerned about being a friend. Question number two, to what extent am I self-serving in my desire for friendship? Number three, am I lacking initiative? Remember earlier when we saw the friendship that the triune persons of the God have, have with each other and that, that's reflected in, his, in their relationship to us? He takes initiative. It's, the, it's one of the cardinal aspects of Christian friendship, of people who are taking initiative to be friends. Am I lacking initiative, general, generally requiring that others take initiative toward me, thus placing what we already talked about, that burden on others, and, and the work primarily on others to prove that they're friendly? To what extent are you, this is a hard question to ask, but it's, an, it's a vital question to ask if, you, if you're struggling to find friendships, especially deep ones, to what extent are you not being a good friend? A man that has friends must show himself friendly. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, says this. So if you don't believe me, listen to Matthew Henry. He's older, wiser, certainly than me. Solomon here recommends friendship to us and shows, number one, what we must do that we may contract and cultivate friendship. You want friends? How do you contract and cultivate those friendships? Would we have friends and keep them? We must not only not affront them or quarrel with them, but we must love them and make it appear that we do so by all expressions that are endearing, by being free with them, generous, pleasing them, visiting them, and bidding them welcome. And especially by doing all the good offices we can and serving them in everything that lies in our power that is showing, our, that is showing ourselves friendly. The most common reason that people consistently struggle with making friends is they, that they forget that the first principle of any healthy relationship is self-giving love, not self-serving demand. If this describes you, understand that other people quickly pick up on the demands that you're placing on them to carry the burden of friendship, and few people want that kind of lopsided friendship. If you think this describes you, then prayerfully consider the questions that I posed above. And if you're not sure... Are you angry? 
let's have a conversation. You have elders to help you with this. Help you think through this. Okay, question, or problem number two. I'm not content with the friends I, I'm sorry, no. That's the opposite. Okay, problem number two. We see this too. I am content with the friends I have. New people would disrupt, disrupt my friend group. I don't have a need for other friends. You see that on the one hand, we got people who are struggling to find friendship. On the other hand, it's, I'm, I'm perfectly content with the friends that I have. I'm good to go. Is it wrong to be content? No. Is it wrong to be content with the friends you have? No. Not in itself. But what is at the heart of this attitude? For somebody to say, look, I'm perfectly content with the friends that I have. I don't need any more friends. What's, at the, what's the heart attitude that's being expressed there? It's self. This kind of contentment isn't satisfaction with God and what he's given to you. It's a counterfeit contentment. Our contentment should, should be, God, you have given me what I have, and if you never changed anything, I would be content with this. Rather, this is a self-satisfaction that all your needs are met, and that's really all that matters. This attitude forgets that the heart of friendship is love, not love generally defined, but love given its shape, character, and goal in what Jesus said about it and how he lived it out on the cross. If you are self-content with your friendships, if you've closed yourself off to other people, if you're not even thinking about other people when you're planning and organizing things and you're wondering what you're going to do that day, and you are just not thinking about anybody except your own little group, if you are self-satisfied, then you're not operating the way that Jesus operated and operates, by the way. He could have been perfectly satisfied for, listen to this, think back to the, the relationship he has with Father, with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He could have been perfectly satisfied for eternity in the perfect relationship he had with the Father and the Spirit. A friend group of three. Yet he chose, because he is love, to pour himself out into the lives of you. Difficult, intransigent, excuse-making, challenging people with so much potential. Made in the image of God. Dignified. Valuable. He saw the joy set before him, and it was you. And so he left the contentment that he had in his little friend group, and he became your savior and your king and your friend. I'm not trying to ignore the fact that we all have limits. We are finite. I, I often feel the weight of the relationships I already have and the stress genuinely at the idea of more relationships to cultivate. But the questions we should be asking are not what God would have. I'm sorry. The questions we should be asking are what God would have us to do today in obedience. Friendships are different and dynamic. To befriend a new person doesn't necessarily mean that we share our deepest burdens with them immediately or ever. But we should be willing to go where God leads into friendships that God is calling us to move into. And as we do, what you find is you're often surprised at the friendships that do develop and the additional capacities that God ends up giving to you. Because he always gives you what you need when he asks you to, to obey. God never asks us to do something he does not equip us for. So if this describes you, I want to challenge you. Like, think about this. Am I, am I satisfied in my friend group because 
I've been treating friendship as if it's something that is for me rather than having that attitude of love that gives. So problem number three, I don't want that person to be my friend. I mean, I don't have to be friends with everyone, right? I'm hoping that by now you're beginning to get the perspective that we are supposed to be approaching friendship with and that this attitude is sounding as ugly as it really is. It's, it takes the truth. I don't need to be friends with everyone. Is that true? Yes, it's impossible to be friends with everybody. I don't need to be friends. Some people I shouldn't be friends with. That is all true. It takes the truth and uses it as an excuse to avoid loving people the way that God not only calls us to, but demonstrated that he does. This attitude is self-serving rather than sacrificial, me-oriented rather than Christ-oriented. It's based on, if, if it's flowing, if that attitude is flowing out of conflict with that person, then listen to what you're doing. It's hopeless, a hopeless form of avoidance that guarantees that you will never see God's ability to transform and to reconcile. I'm in conflict with that person. I have no hope of their change. I can't imagine ever being close friends with them after what they did or what they said or all the differences that we have together. You will never see God's transforming work in friendships if that's your attitude. Your only hope was that Jesus chose to befriend you and you were difficult and unlovely and he continues to be patient even now as you grow, even now when you hurt him. He is durable enough because his relational sinews are strengthened by love. And so can yours be as you saturate yourself in that love. Jesus called us to pay particular attention to our enemies. The world rejects those with whom they are in conflict. That's what the world does. I'm in conflict with that person. They offended me. They hurt me. They've done it time and time again. And so you put up the stiff arm. You make the avoiding move. That's what the world does. And you know, when the world sees us doing that, you know what the world does? Nothing. They don't care what we're doing when we're acting like them. There is nothing to marvel at in that behavior. But Christ pursues those with whom he is in conflict. When you find yourself in conflict, are you responding like Christ? Or are you making excuses for yourself? I don't need to be friends with everybody. But it is precisely at this point that we demonstrate whether or not we understand what Christ has done for us. Our dismissive, cold, merely cordial indifference toward those with whom we differ, disagree, or are in disagreement or in conflict, is evidence that we have not genuinely grasped what it means to love. And it is that fundamental commandment that we are told by Christ himself defines what it looks like to abide in his love. If you call Jesus your friend, you must love the way he loves. That's the hard call of Jesus Christ on your life. The world marvels, scratches its head, and sees the antithetical difference in our lives, not when we do the same thing that they do, but when we do the opposite. 
that's when God is glorified, when enemies become friends. And that only happens when we have a heart disposition toward and seek opportunities to pursue the very people that our flesh would cause us to turn away from. I, again, I recognize a lot of these situations might be or at least feel complicated. Most of the time, honestly, life is not complicated. It's just hard. Just, it's not complicated to know what to do. It's just hard to do it. <laughs> Who said that? It's true. Marriage is like that. It's not, you don't have to wonder, what should I do with my wife today? You know, we got into a conflict. Well, confess your sin. Humble yourself. It's not complicated. It's just hard. Same thing here. Sometimes you might not know, though. It might feel complicated. What should I do? How do, how do, I, how do I love this person? There is a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. I'm afraid. I don't want to be hurt again. And I'm not saying throw yourself in thoughtlessly or unwisely or lacking discernment, but I'm responding to, to those situations that I know I've, we've seen them for years. Problem number four, I never have conflicts with my friends. We always get along. Okay, why is that a problem? Why is a lack of conflict among friends a problem? Because the only way that you can actually be in, in a real friendship, meaning a deeper friendship, not a, I probably should avoid real friendship, but in a deep friendship, which I know many of you, you are not really acting like true friends. Hear Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. It gives us these challenging words. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Okay, so rebuke, nobody likes, I don't like to be rebuked. But Solomon says better is open rebuke than hidden love. It's better to be rebuked than to have somebody loving you, but never rebuking, never saying hard words. In verse six, faithful are the wounds of a friend. This assumes that a real friend is willing to wound you. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If your friends are constantly kissing you, always telling you what you want to hear, you're in conflict with somebody else, there's a disappointment, there's something going on in your life, and you come to them, and all you ever hear is, oh, you poor thing. You're so right. Alarm bells should start going off. This person does not know how to be a good friend to me. You can't always be right. You're not always the victim. Real friends speak the truth in love. Real friends love their friends enough to tell them the truth. Real friends respond to truth. This is your response. Real friends, if you're a real friend, when truth is brought to you, even when it's not brought the way you'd like or it's not even brought appropriately, but it's true, real friends respond to truth even when it hurts with humility and thankfulness, not with anger or passive-aggressive silence or cold shoulders or gossip. Real friendship is not defined by a lack of conflict or a lack of disagreement, but by good conflict that is resolved well, or even bad conflict that's resolved well. Jesus was the best of friends, and he spoke hard words regularly. When a friend brings a hard situation to you, hard words, and your most, I'm sorry, the picture is what I already mentioned. You're the friend, you go to somebody and, and you bring them a problem in your life, and all you ever hear is, man, you're right, they really hurt you. 
but there's never any gentle correction. If you rarely ever stop to ask yourself if your friend may be in the wrong in some way, if your tendency is to take sides out of a sense of loyalty to them, you're not being a good friend. You're forgetting that your first love and loyalty is to your friend Jesus. He is the truth. We are to love the truth. And the truth is that we must truly love our friends. If you're constantly kissing your friends, then you're not acting like a friend. You're acting like an enemy. Well, but what if, I, what if I speak the truth and my friend gets angry? Is that a possibility? Yeah, absolutely. Why are you so scared of their anger? Shouldn't you be more afraid of God's anger? This is an example of fear of man rather than fear of God. Fear of man is a sin. And fear of man makes for really, really bad friendships. What if I speak the truth out of a desire for good and they reject my friendship? Well, real friendship, like the rest of life, takes faith. We must trust God that when we honor him in thankful and faithful obedience, he will walk with us and he will bless us. And even though, though this might be through difficulties and disappointments, you may lose a friendship. But if this is because you are being true to your friendship with Jesus, then you leave the consequences to him and you let him sort it out. The last problem that I wanted to address today is I don't have a best friend. Man, I really wish I had a best friend. I see all these other people on Instagram talking about their besties. This is actually one of the most damaging and unhelpful misconceptions about friendship that I've seen. Many of you have either been deeply saddened that you've never found a best friend, others of you have been profoundly disappointed or hurt by someone who was your best friend and is now not. This change may be through nothing sinful, but simply the natural flux and change of life. If I didn't have my twin brother in my wedding, it would have been Phil. I would have, if you'd asked me, who's your best friend, I probably would have objected even at that time. I don't, I don't like, that's not a helpful way of thinking about friendship, but I probably would have picked him at the time. Is he now, does he hold that same sacrosanct location in my friendship life? No. A lot of you, when you experience those natural changes, get really upset. I can't believe this relationship changed. We were besties. That should never change. Besties for life. Where did you come up with this idea? I need a best friend. Where do you even get the idea that that thing exists? Is it from the word of God? I'm willing to eat crow if you can find it for me. But not even David's relationship with Jonathan. We hear they, they were best friends. We know that they were close friends. There's no need to rank your friends so that one always feels superior, special, and anyone outside that status feels less important. When we create this special status, we set ourselves and our friends up for pride, for envy, and for dissatisfaction. In fact, many people, listen to this, because you've experienced this, especially gals. I'm going to be very politically incorrect, but this happens a lot in your relationships. Many times, this best friend status as you is used as a way to manipulate friends 
Be on guard against this in yourself and with your friends. You can use it, well, if I start treating them this way, it's going to have this effect on this other person. I can manipulate this person by letting them know if they treated me this way or they did this for me, they get this special, elevated step. I know some of you have experienced this. Stop looking for a best friend. Stop referring to one person as your best friend. Talk about the special relationships that you have. Enjoy the variety of friendship that God's give, friendships that God gives you, some of which are closer and deeper than others. And be okay with the changes that come over time. If you avoid this pitfall, you will find that you're a better friend and your friendships are better. And I lied. There's one more. It's too good not to, not to talk about. Number six, and I promise this is last because it says conclusion on the next page. My friendships are filled with drama, often seeming to lead me away from Christ or at least to keep me immature. And maybe you're not actually thinking about that, but as you think about, well, yeah, my, my relationships often are filled with drama. Well, then, you know what's happening? They're keeping you immature. They're, they're not leading you toward Christ. You're either stagnating or falling away. Friendships do not have to be filled with drama. No matter what you've heard in the songs or no matter what you've seen in movies, no matter what Instagram, Facebook, or any of the other social media outlets tell you as you're passively, as you're watching, you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot of drama here. Yes, friendships are often hard and there are challenges to work through, but persistent drama is a sign of bad friendships or that you are a bad friend. It can and must be fixed either through maturing together or separating. If you're telling yourself that drama is normal in friendships, that means that you don't know any better because you've surrounded yourself with poor friends or you don't want to change and are using this as an excuse to not have to change. Some people just like drama. It gives them a sense of meaning and importance. If that's you, it's a sin to be repented of. You should be seeking to build friendships on character. What do you see in that person? What do you see in that person that, that you see that they could grow into? So there is a potential. You, you don't have to be friends with perfect people. That's going to be impossible. But when you look at people, why are you choosing to be friends with that person? Do you see their character? Or do you see the potential in that person and you want to be helping to water that and to bless them so that they might grow into what you, you see that they could be? Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. Do not be deceived. Bad com company ruins good morals. The friends you choose to spend time with will affect you. To deny this is not to argue with me, but with God. Paul tells us not to be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Do not be deceived. Why is he saying do not be deceived? Because we're easily deceived. I'm not being affected by this relationship. I'm having the influence on them. And, you know, honestly, in as we mature, we, we do have friendships where we are a blessing to other people who are less mature. 
not denying that. But you should be on guard that you might not be deceived because bad company ruins good morals. And if you're walking with wise people, you will become wise. And if you're walking with fools, stop being surprised when you become a fool. You have been warned by God's word. Do you like what you see in the people you're spending time with? That's what you'll become. Surround yourself with the kind of people you want to be. Are you placing the unbearable burden of perfection on your friends? If so, you're going to be constantly disappointed. You'll be offended, and you will offend. So welcome to friendship in a fallen world. Jesus loves us by showering us with patience and mercy. Our friendship should be experienced in the same way. Extend patience and mercy, even as you have received it from Jesus. And so these are the concluding words. My concern today, my fear, is that many of you will hear what I'm saying, and there's going to be two responses. One is, you'll think that I'm not talking about you. If you have been listening and thinking about all the other people in your life who you wish had heard this sermon, then I ask you to stop and to consider how these words really do apply to you. We could all be better friends. I can be a better friend. You can be a better friend. My other fear, though, is that many of you will hear this and your response will be argument, defensiveness, anger. For some of you today, your conscience is being provoked and you're finding it very unpleasant. So I want to remind you that I'm trying to be faithful to God as your friend, to speak truth in love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let me repeat the words of Jesus back to you that you might understand the heart of your preacher today. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be full. I want you to find your greatest joy in the friendship that you have with Jesus. And flowing out from that, I want all your other friendships to produce what they were designed to produce, deep and growing joy. When we pursue and engage in friendship the way that Jesus did, as difficult as it might be, what he gifts us with and what he will gift you with is joy. Let's pray. Father, we want to make much of Jesus this morning, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the very ground of any hope that we have to be friends with you and to be good friends to one another. We want our joy to be full. And so, Father, help us to look to Christ again afresh and new. Mold us and shape us. Transform us. Give us new affections, new desires, new eyes, new ways of looking at the world, ourselves, and one another. And I pray that as we, as we enjoy this time of friendship, of fellowship together, that you would even use this meal to this end, that our joy may be full and that we might become better and better friends. I pray this in Jesus' name.